Let's grab them out. We're going to share some scriptures together. We're turning to 1 Peter chapter 4. Just before we get there, I want to share a few things in relation to this coming week. If you caught the notice or if you were here the last couple of weeks, we let you know that we just felt to have a week of prayer. Not because we thought it was a good idea, although having a week of prayer would always be a good idea. I thought there might be a little more enthusiasm about that. We'll press on. But no, we felt specifically like this was not just a good idea, but a God idea. And the last couple of weeks, I've been sharing a little bit behind the, the heart of what it is that we are just seeking the Lord for. We put on the, uh, the little flyer, the advertisement notice, a scripture from Hosea, which talks about it being the time to seek the Lord. Now, it's always the time to seek the Lord, isn't it? It's always a good time to seek the Lord. But there's moments I've found where the Lord just invites us, as the psalmist said, you say to me, Lord, seek your face, and my heart responds and replies, your face, Lord, will I seek. There's moments where the Lord says, I want you to turn aside and to seek me. So I'll explain how that's going to work in just a moment. But I thought rather than uh, sharing some of the reasons behind the, uh, what the Lord's really stirred in our hearts over the last couple of weeks, I was encouraged during this past week as I spent some time with the Lord one particular morning and I picked up a little brochure that we put together some years ago and this in fact is a prophetic history of Vision Christian Fellowship. So it outdates me by some years and there's many words and scriptures and senses that the Lord's given to us as a church over the years things that he's both called us to and at different seasons in the church has stirred in our hearts and in our midst. And I read through this, and as I said, rather than me sharing what I feel like the Lord stirred us in this year, I read this that I thought, you know, isn't it interesting? Because certainly on some level, there's not really anything new that the Lord's stirring. But there is some significant things that I believe we're called to as a church to go after as we seek after the Lord. And I um, want to share one in particular. There's a number of visions in here. As I said, there's scriptures, there's words from the Lord. But this one was a vision that was given to Bev Moyle, who's one of the founding members of the church, was on staff here for many years. And I did ask her permission to share it. Is that still okay? Not sure what I'd do if you said no. But she said this, the Lord gave me, and this is back in 95, the Lord gave me the following vision. I saw a map of Australia and straggling across it was a huge line of young people in rows of 16 across. The line stretched for as far as I could see. I saw many people I recognized, friends of my sons and thousands of others, all who were shackled by the ankles. I cried out to the Lord to free them. Then I saw one of my sons who has walked away from the Lord and my crying intensified. At this point, the Lord said, I'm giving you a heart for the lost and the prodigals as if each one was your own. I continued to plead for their chains to be broken. The ones in front began to dance. And as they did, the shackles fell from them. I realized that the shackles were merely paper mache. And God said, the strongest chains are merely paper mache to me. When I move in your land, you will see thousands set free in a moment. Then I saw a vision of Australia with huge icebergs all around her. The whole coastline, which is most of where most of the population resides, was frozen. I saw cities made of ice, people, ice statues. Everything was frozen 
Huge fear was everywhere, a coldness of heart, indifference, self-centeredness, and unforgiveness. I prayed fervently, Lord, send your fire and melt this ice, but nothing happened. Again, I shook and I cried and I cried louder and louder and more desperately. Finally, I asked, what, Lord, will move your hand? And God replied, prayer. Not easy glib prayers, but the travail of spirit, my people being willing to be spent and exhausted in prayer. But when the fire comes, I will melt the icebergs, I'll melt the ice cities and the frozen people, and there'll be enough water to cover the land and to flow as mighty rivers of blessing. And then uh, Peter, who, of course, most of you would know is our founding pastor, was our senior pastor for many years until recent times. He puts this little phrase at the bottom of the uh, recording of this vision. He says this, I hope and pray that the above will be honoring of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his current call to the church in Australia. Where the above is not of the Lord, may it fall to the ground. Where it does have his stamp upon it, will you join with our fellowship and cry out for our nation? Now that was dated 21st of November 1995. And as I read that, I was struck with a couple of things. First of all, I thought as I read that, this could be describing our nation some 20-something years later. Couldn't it? What an accurate description. Cold and hardness of heart and apathy. And yet I strongly believe that this is what the Lord is calling us to. And I shared last week that this is not just a prayer week in general, but specifically you know, what, what the Lord said to me. And, and I'm someone, I love prayer. I love to go after prayer. And I'm regularly praying for the church, regularly praying for people in the church, for many of you, regularly playing, praying for issues of our city. But specifically at this time, I felt like the Lord challenged me and said, He's really stirring up a people who not only prayed, but who will intercede for a nation, who will bring before him the nation of Australia. So that's what we're going to do. You know, I've been involved in prayer movements. I know in the 90s, there was a great push of prayer, 24-7 prayer. Who heard of the call back then? Was anyone a part of the call? You know, these great movements. But there was a sense as well that came with that, that it did slip into this thing of works, of this is all about us and we've got to do more. And, and I don't want it to be any sense of that. This is not a sense of we've got to work something up. Simply a sense of just responding to the Lord. I feel like this really is one of the calls of us as a church. It's to intercede on behalf of the nation. It's to cry out to see the Lord move in power in a way that does set the captives free, in a way that brings liberty, in a way that brings a mighty wave of conviction and repentance and glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been praying as a church for 20 plus years. I didn't realize, but I was encouraged. And we're going to redig some of those wells. And in fact, it's a lady in the church. She's in her 90s. And she said to me earlier this year, she said, I've been crying out for revival for as long as I can remember. And she said this. She said, in her 90s, and she said, I believe the Lord's told me that he will not call me home until I see a mighty move of the Lord in our nation. So we're going to press in. We're going to press in. I'm not going to put any pressure on you. I'm not going to say you have to do it. Simply an invitation. It's time to seek the Lord. So this coming week from Tuesday to Friday, church will be open in the morning, middle of the day, in the evenings, 7 till 9 a.m. I don't know if you've got this slide up there. 
but there's a little fly you can grab if you haven't already. 12 till 2 in the middle of the day and then 7.30 to 9.30 in the evenings. And I, I shared um, a little bit of this with the elders during the week. I said, oh, and asked Bev's permission to share it. And I said, I, I think I'll just encourage people with, with that particular vein. And they said, oh, well, if you were around in those times, which I wasn't, um, they said, you know, we just had all night prayer meetings. We just kept going all into the night. And I said, well, you know, I'm open. I'll leave you the keys. I guarantee if you pray all night, I'll bring you coffee in the morning. How's that sound? But we're setting aside some times. But look, I don't mind if you want to pray into the night. If the Lord moves, then I'm all open. All I feel is that it is a, a time to respond to the Lord's invitation. This coming week, join us in prayer. Sound all right? So let's pray for that. Let's pray for the word. And then we'll get into things this morning. So Lord... As I read out, as Peter proclaimed some 20 years plus ago, Lord, whatever of this is of you, would you cause it to stir in our hearts? Would you give us a passion, Lord, to pray and not just pray, but to intercede? For your word proclaims that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves, will seek after you, that you will turn, that you will heal their land. And that's what we're praying for. Lord, we're praying for a move of your spirit that sets captives free. We're praying for the name of Jesus to be exalted. We're praying for the blind to see and the lame to walk, for the glory of your name, that your gospel would be preached and proclaimed with signs and wonders from one corner of our nation to the other. And Lord, as your people, we say, here we are. Whatever we can serve as a part of your glorious mission, here we are. Send us. Stir our hearts to pray, fill us up, and send us to go. And just breathe your life upon this word, I pray, Lord Jesus. May you speak to us. May you encourage us. Jesus, may you open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are, the majesty of your love, the depth of your grace, the embrace of our Heavenly Father, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, our comforter and our helper. We look to you, Jesus, for all that is on your agenda. Come and have your way, we say. Amen. Amen. So, if you came in late, we're turning to 1 Peter. We're going to read from chapter 4, which is where we're up to, just studying through his word. We've had a few weeks of sharing some different things, but I'm just really excited to get back studying his word, studying his scriptures, allowing him to speak to us. And I have what really is a, a very simple reminder for us this morning. I'm hoping, it's not often I'd say this, but I'm hoping that you don't learn anything this morning. I'm genuinely hoping that there is nothing new in this message, but it's a stirring and it's a reminder of an essential truth, something that's so foundational that we need to never lose sight of and never forget. The Apostle Peter, of course, writing this book, which he says himself is written to exhort and declare the true grace of God, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. We talked about this word last time, which I realized was some time ago, in the midst of trips and other things. Again and again, he uses these military terms. You know, grace is not something soft and wishy-washy. It's empowering to set us free to live for his call. Sometimes the problem is we don't even realize we're in a battle. We don't understand 
what the weapons we have are. So he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. An interesting description of verse that confuses people, this phrase, has ceased from sin. Let me say what he's not saying. Has anybody noticed that when you encounter Jesus, you don't just miraculously cease from sinning? Anyone realize that? Still able to make bad choices? About three of us. The rest of you need to come forward at the end of the service. Because 1 John chapter 1 says this, If anyone claims to be without sin, he is a liar living in deception. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that somehow this work of Christ automatically stops us from sinning. In fact, the phrase literally means to be set free from its power, to, mean to, to be delivered from its grip, to no longer be under its dominion. This is the work of cross, the cross. Our sins have been forgiven, they've been washed away. We have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within us to walk in holiness, to walk in a passionate pursuit of the one who set us free. And that's exactly what he's going to say here in verse 2. So we've been set free from the dominion of sin for this reason, number one, so that we can live the rest of our time in the flesh no longer for human passions, no longer does sin reign in our mortal bodies, no, no longer do we live under its control. We can walk in freedom. It's for freedom that he set us free. So freedom from and freedom for, to live for the will of God. That's his passion all the way through to give us this picture of the freedom of grace and its empowering presence to walk in holiness. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices. The ESV almost misses it a little bit. Don't think that this is somehow that we're removed. It phrases it this way, we've spent enough of our past lives, is the New, New King James rendering. So he's talking to us. We have spent enough of our past lives living in the flesh, doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Who's thinking this is sounding reasonably interesting? Where are we headed with this? Verse 4, here's Peter's moment of pastoral, political correctness, sensitivity. It says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. He's not mincing his words. I challenge you this week to try in our politically correct society and get that phrase somewhere in your conversations. Say, look, thank you for the invitation this weekend. I won't be joining in your flood of debauchery. But you go right ahead. He's not mincing his words. Verse 6 or verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What a strong picture of the world in which we live. This picture of sin, a society corrupt by sin. We'll come back to that. If we'd left it there, it would be a rather depressing passage. And yet in verse 6, and this is the message for this morning. For this is why, another translation says, for this reason, the gospel. For this reason, the gospel. Praise God for this reason. For this reason, the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. For this reason, the gospel was preached, that the dead might live. 
Okay, let's get the context there. So first of all, we see this picture, and Peter doesn't mince, doesn't mince his words. It's a picture of sin. It's a picture of a world. He's saying we live in a world that has given itself over to sin. And yes, I could sit here and we could talk about positives and look at all good things, but if you look at the reality of the world around us, we're no different, are we, some 2,000 years later? It's a world that openly mocks decency, goodness, and godliness, derides virtue, all the while embracing all manner of practices, insisting that they're simply the new normal. And yes, we reinvent it, we redefine it, we re-justify it, but despite all of our self-professed intellectualism, self-congratulatory, self-promoting notions of how far we've evolved, how godlike we've become, I would say this, the fundamental issue has never changed. And the issues that we see around us in the world, they're not political. Sure, there's some corrupt politicians. They're not ultimately environmental. They're not policy issues. They are a sin issue. We are a people in open rebellion against the God who created us. It's a sober picture. It's a serious picture, but it's the picture that Peter's wanting us to grasp. But we're not left there. He's saying, recognize that there's sin. Recognize that there is an account that we will give before a holy God. But, verse 6, for this reason, the gospel is preached. And who is it preached to? He's not saying for this reason the gospel's preached to those who are they're doing okay. They're doing all right. They just need a bit of help. They need a few helpful philosophies, a bit of self-help, a bit of coaching in a few areas, tips to do life better, self-managing strategies. They just need a little bit more peace. They've just got a little God-shaped hole in their heart that they'll just never be satisfied unless Jesus can come and just... Just fill it up and warm and fuzzies. He doesn't even say the gospel's preached to those who are sick and lame. He says, for this reason, the gospel's preached to those who are dead. So who's he talking about? Who's dead? Who are these dead people? Well, Ephesians 2.1, let me just be direct here. It says this, as for you, that's us, that's every single person on this human human existence on this planet. As for you, you were dead in your sins. That's us. That's our natural state apart from the grace, the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.13 says the same. When you were dead in your sins, for this reason the gospel is preached to bring the dead life. You see, what do you need when you're dead? Have you ever thought about that? What do you need when you're dead? Because all the religion and the philosophy and the moral exertion and the good works are not going to help you when you're dead. You might have been thinking they might, but they're not going to help. What do you need when you're dead? You need life. It's the message of the gospel. Cheer up, you're much worse off than you thought. <laughs> Apart from him, we are dead. And yet this is the beauty of the gospel. It's in that place that we find life for this reason the gospel is preached and i want to just i want to make this as clear as possible you see this truth of the gospel preached to bring life to the dead 
This is not a subplot. It's not one of many ingredients. It's not even the icing on the cake. It's the cake. It's the bakery. It's the entire purpose of God's plan for humanity that he would redeem and rescue for his glory a people who were dead, raising the dead to life, predestined for the adoption of sons. It's his glorious grace by faith through the work of Christ for the glory of our God, for the glory of his name, for this reason. So that's it. That's the one point. Amen. The rest is a bonus. But I want to just encourage us around this simple thought of for this reason. See, I saw some research this week. You might have seen it if you check some of the Christian news websites, Christianity Today, others that I check. But there was a new study done by a research center called the Pew Research Center. They are one of the more prominent research centers coming out of uh, evangelical Christianity in the U.S. And they do studies every decade or so just to determine as a litmus test for the feelings and thoughts of people towards religious belief, asking a number of questions. But here's one that jumped out at me. They've asked this question a number of times over the years. Is it possible to be a good person and to live a good life without any religious belief or conviction. And in this particular study, for the first time, it was more than 50% said, yes, it is possible to be a good person. In our own merit, in our own steam, 56% to be precise, said it is possible to be a good person and to live a good life without any religious belief or convictions. So you say, okay, well, what does that mean? What's the point? You see, I've noticed something, not just in the world, but also infiltrating in in the church. We have this desire. We have this, almost this longing that somehow deep within us, there's something inherently good. We want to believe that deep down, maybe we make bad choices, but deep down inherently, we are good people. If you ask anybody, you say, are you a good person? Inevitably, I mean, I'm surprised in some ways it's only 56%. I say, well, yes, I'm a good person. Apart from anything else, apart from bad choices I've made, I am inherently a good person. See, this is dangerous. If we can live a good life in our own effort and strength, then what place does the cross have? And what need do we ever have for repentance and salvation? If we become the measure of our own goodness, and this is the danger, This is the lie. It's subtle, but it's so important. If we become the measure of our own goodness, we rob the cross of its power, we remove the need for repentance, and Jesus becomes our life coach rather than our Savior. He's just there to give us a few tips, just to help get the best out of your potential, help you meet those KPIs. And you see, whether we like it or not, this view has infiltrated the church. Not even subtly, but overtly, we preach these humanistic philosophies and messages that are more interested in self-help than salvation. Jesus is not our life coach. He's the one who bled and died, that by his blood we can know forgiveness, that we can be raised from death to life. And something that got me thinking about this is, I hate to do this, but I was on Facebook, this is probably a couple of months ago now, and I never bite. I'm very good, I'm very controlled. I sit there and I listen to all this rubbish that's put forward about everyone's two cents and, and 
to be honest, at times I just don't even look. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. But this particular time I jumped on there and there was this one discussion and I thought, okay, all right, I'm just going to make one little comment. And this was to someone who was a Christian person. We're talking about similar sort of issues. I'm trying to be very vague just in case any of you know this person. And I just made this comment. I said, well, did you know that the Bible actually says that we're inherently, as a result of the fall, we're inherently not good but bad, evil, sinful people in need of the grace of God? Well, you would not believe the torrent of abuse that I got back simply making that one statement. But this is a question we need to ask. Are we inherently good or are we inherently evil? How do we know? Does it matter? And I would say, yes, this is so fundamentally important because unless we grasp this, we will not understand what salvation is. And unless we really get a hold of it, we're presenting a gospel that's at best incomplete or at best it's not even resembling the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could look at a number of things here, but I want to just go to one particular place. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. I like this passage and I've got the mic, so you can pretend to like it too. I remember seeing this some time ago and I'd always struggled with this thing of what's the law about? God, what, what was... What was your purpose for calling Abraham and then some 400 years ago, 400 years later, for 1600 years before Jesus, there was the law, which of course all the religious Pharisees and leaders, they used it as a measure of their righteousness. This is how good I've been. You know, I've upheld these seven commandments. There's a couple there that slipped, you know, maybe three or four, but don't worry about them. I'm more good than bad. So in, in the sight and the standing of God, I'm okay. And we're often the same, aren't we? We use the law, we use the commandments of God as a measure of our own righteousness. And yet there was something more fundamental at play. And Paul, being the spiritual father of Timothy, said this in chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. So there's the first thing that's, that's different than most of the modern preaching. We say, well, the law's bad. It's done, done away with. It's all gone. Well, Paul's actually saying here to Timothy, no, the law is good. The law is good if you use it for the right purpose. So he's saying the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Well, that's interesting. That word there is for the righteous. It's not for the right. Well, who is it for? He said it is for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane. Are you capturing his intent here? For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and just in case you thought that your particular sin didn't fit in there, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. A blanket cover. So what is it that Paul's saying? Here's the point. We could say many things, but this is what I want you to grab. Is that the law was not laid down ever as a measure of our righteousness. The law was laid down as a measure of our sinfulness and our need of his salvation. And that's why he said, see, this is the picture and you're never going to measure it out and that's why you've got to do all these sacrifices and offerings which were only ever temporary and only ever prophetically pointed to what Jesus would do once and for all in making a way to fulfill the law. Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And it still stands as a measure of our need of a holy God. 
You see, it's only when we recognize the problem that we truly realize our need, the world's need for the solution, which is for this reason the gospel was proclaimed. I have this little thing that I found very useful, and hopefully it's useful. If not, you have permission to dismiss it, ignore it. But it's um, an approach by a guy called Ray Comfort. Who's heard of Ray Comfort? New Zealand-born evangelist living in the, the U.S., and uh, I mean, his passion is evangelism, and I've used it in this context with some success over the years. But he said, every time I present the gospel, I make sure that first of all, there's an avenue in there to present the problem before I give them the solution. It's not just always about all the good things. It's about, well, hang on, let's actually get a grasp on what's important and what's fundamental in the mission of Jesus Christ. And he does it using this, this principle in First Timothy here and allowing the Lord to reveal this misnomer that somehow we are inherently good as people. And so I'll, I'll use Adam. I used him in the early service too to illustrate this. He always gets picked on for my sermons and he still graciously sits in the front row. And so he'll come up to someone and there's lots of interviews on his particular website illustrating this point with, with some great effect. And he'll say to this person on camera with a microphone pointed in their face, put them on the spot, but he say, he'll say, Adam, do you believe that you're a good person? Yes, he knows the answers and he still says yes. That's, that's very obedient. So without fail, everybody who's asked that question, as recent surveys would indicate, unless there's some random exception, most of us think that we're good. We're inherently good. And so we'll say, okay, well, I understand that by your own measure of goodness, you believe you're good. But let's just for a moment, you may not believe in God or not, but let's just see how your goodness measures with the standard that's in Scripture. Let's take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Everyone's heard the Ten Commandments. Here's one of them. Thou shalt not lie. Adam, have you ever told a lie? I have to ask his parents. Has he ever told a lie? No, I have. Oh, he has. I was a little worried there for a moment. Oh, that's very suspicious. I think we're, I think, <laughs> I think we're playing a video that we're going to show shortly there, but that's a little bit too early. But it was good atmospheric music there. It was kind of setting the scene. It's the Lord. <laughs> Nothing like a public confession. <laughs> All right, where were we? So, Adam, you've told a lie. What does that make you? You've told a lie. Makes you a liar. Here's another commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? No. <laughs> I think his parents are a little too close. The answer was yes. Yes, he has. Well, what does that make you? That makes you a thief. Okay, so we're a lying thief. We're... Two from two, we're not going so well. Here's, here's another one. I mean, there's a commandment. It says this, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I know Steph's not here, but we can tell her with all confidence, I know you very well. You're the most pious and righteous man that I know. Um, and yet Jesus, Jesus took the commandments to the next level. He didn't relax the commandments. He said, I, I'm not doing away with them. I'm going to fulfill them. But he said this, you've heard the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And yet I say to you, if you've even lusted after a woman with your eyes, you've committed adultery with her in, the heart, in your heart. Now, I won't ask you again just to embarrass you too much. But let's think about that question. If you were asked that, if you were faced with God's righteous standard, surely everybody in this room would acknowledge yes. So we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments, and we've all acknowledged before the Lord that we are lying, thieving, adulterers of heart. Is that a bit of a reality check? 
Wow. See, but it's at that moment where we realize the depth of our depravity that the good news of the gospel can come in. And so Ray would often ask people, would say, well, how, how do you feel now? We've only looked at three of the commandments. How are you feeling about yourself? Do you think you're as good as you were five minutes ago? Or do you think if you had a moment, as the Bible says that all of us will give an account of our lives, standing before a holy God, who is loving but he's holy, how do you think you would measure up? He wouldn't measure up. And if Adam can't measure up, let me tell you, he's the most incredible person I know on this planet. How on earth do any of us have any hope? But you see, that's the good news of the gospel. You know, you were standing there accused and guilty of crimes. And yet there was one who came in and he paid the price for you and he died. He said, this is for you, Adam. My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you like to put your faith in him today? I would if I had <laughs> he would. Praise God. We've got a pastor saved. Can we thank Adam for his willingness to... Uh... You see, it's a misnomer when we hold on to this view as the world does, but so often in the church, that somehow we are inherently good. Somehow we are inherently good. And tragically, this has so affected the gospel that we've preached. There's a guy by the name of John Bevere. He's got a new book talking about some similar issues. I haven't read it. Adam said he picked it up this week. But he put together this little video to illustrate the way that our, our gospel so often in modern church life is compromised. It's a funny little skit, but it's got a powerful point. So can we just play that now? Hey, bro, look, check it out. Labradoodle. What? Yeah, right down there. Oh, I love good breed. It's so good. Yes, half lab, half moodle. Wait, what? Incredible. Moodle? Yeah. No, that's moodle. not a thing ever. No, no, it totally is. A moodle. Isn't that, isn't that Dave from Econ? Oh, yeah. What is he doing up here? He's probably just enjoying the view, man. Wait, isn't isn't Dave blind? We gotta warn him. Hey, hey, Dave. Whoa, 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 bro. What are you doing? You can't, you can't just tell Dave what to do. Wait, why? Are you blind? Uh, no. Okay, so then you don't know what Dave's gone through. You can't really relate to him, man. Just, just, just let him be. He's totally fine. Literally slipping right now. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna get all up on him for for slipping. Like everyone slips from here and there. I don't it's care no if he slips. I'm just trying to keep it. a guy from falling off a cliff. No, no. Okay, listen. What what I think you need to do right now is you just need to love him. You need to not point out. What does his that have weaknesses. to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. Okay, like if you. If you point out his weaknesses, he won't feel loved, he won't feel accepted. I'm just, feel I'm just accepted. trying to keep a guy from going off the cliff. No, he's not even stopping. You're, hey, you're Dave! Not, no, whoa, 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 stop it, stop it, stop it! If you speak out against blind people, so what many people will be upset with you? with you. No, so many people won't like you. But also, what if, what if he doesn't like us anymore? Have you ever thought about that? Dave will be dead. I need to say, hey! No, no, Dave! No, no, Dave! No, no. Someone, is someone there? Uh, yeah! Hey Dave, how's it going? It's uh, it's Charlie from school. Oh hey man. Doing this for days. Uh, maybe you can help me out. I seem to have lost a trail somewhere. 
You, you want to tell me if I'm going the right way? Maybe he is lost. You're right. We, we should still just encourage him. Yeah, yeah, hey, no, Dave, you know, you're doing great, man. Uh, uh, you know, I love that you're out here, man, too. I I'm proud of you, being out on this trail. You you're doing great, man, you you're doing great. Oh. Okay, thanks, man. I say I'm going the right way. Watch, he'll figure it out. Just gotta love him through his problems. Yeah, you got it, man. Thank you. It's it's humorous, isn't it? But it packs a bit of a punch. You know, there's there's something that's so important in there for us to consider. So often we've misinterpreted our mission as somehow just making life a little more enjoyable for people as they walk off the cliff. Just encouraging them through, just loving them through. The most loving thing that we can ever do is point people towards life. For this reason, the gospel was preached. See, it's not about relevance alone. It's about repentance. It's not just about self-help. It's about salvation. It's not about making people feel comfortable without conviction. And it's never about proclaiming a gospel that fills seats rather than saves souls and shakes hell. That's our mission. We cannot afford to be indifferent to those who are perishing in sin or silent in the face of evil. That's what Jesus said. He said, you're called to be a light shining in the darkness, a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Somewhere we lost the call of shining into the darkness and thought our mission was simply to appease the darkness or to ignore it altogether. See, Christ knew the desperation of the situation of a humanity lost. And he proclaimed a gospel that began with one word. He said, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a day that we stand before God, and it's not going to be how happy and improved we were, how many good habits, how much we reached our potential, how many Instagram fans. But did you believe in Jesus? Did you put your faith in him? For this reason, the gospel was proclaimed so that the dead might live. That's the gospel we need to rediscover for ourselves. It's the gospel we need to proclaim, not one that fills seats, but one that shakes hells and shakes hell and sees souls saved. It's too many S's, but it's a good message. So we're going to conclude in a particular way. Adam's going to come and sing a song. I want you just to have a moment with the Lord. Put away your devices, your iPads, put away the thoughts of the rest of today and tomorrow and just fix your attention on Jesus just for a moment. As I said earlier, we're having a week this week just to intentionally seek the Lord and I cannot think of a better way to set us up than to remind us of the reason. The reason He came. The reason that we're here today. The reason that we will stand before Him in glory for all eternity. The reason that He hung, He bled and He died. 
The reason is that He would save you and you save me. That the dead could know life. Sins could be washed away. That we could be reconciled with our Heavenly Father. The one who loved us that much that He sent His Son. So as I said earlier, we're going to finish with communion. Adam's going to play a song. I've just had this one. It's a few years old, but it's a song I love. It's a song about coming to the altar. And I just had this sense of just a, a re, refocusing, a refiring moment of just allowing you to sit there. But then when you're ready to come forward and to literally kneel, you don't have an altar, but to kneel on the steps here as we do sometimes as we take communion, just between you and the Lord. And the words of the song are this. It says, are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. So come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah. That's exactly what we're going to do. And I pray that as we come to the altar, let me just say this before I invite you to come in your own time. If there's anyone here this morning and you've never encountered the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you've never been confronted in such a personal way of your own sinfulness, then this altar for you can be a place of moving from death to life. From shame and sin to forgiveness and freedom. For His promise is that if you will come and you will put your faith in Him alone, you will be born again. And if you want to come, I'd ask you specifically, boldly to come and see me. And I'll pray with you. And we'll celebrate as all of heaven celebrates as you take that step you put your faith in Him, as you surrender your life to Christ, the provision that He made. Today is the day of salvation, if you'll be willing to receive it. For the rest of us, I pray that as we come to the altar, there'll be two things. That there'll be a reminder, there'll be a refiring of our passion. For this reason, the gospel was preached, that we would know life. And that it would be a refiring of a passion to tell the world about Jesus. It may not be the message they want to hear, but it is the message that they need to hear. For this reason, the gospel was preached to the dead that they might have life. The glorious, wonderful name of Jesus. So you sit there and listen to these words in your own time. There's no rush. But as you're ready, you come and kneel. I'm just going to ask if there's some of the elders or the pastors, whoever's available, just to come and help me distribute the elements.
in your own time when you're ready you just come you just come let God do what he needs to do in our hearts this morning
Jesus Christ. 